Well, hey, good morning, Gospel Hope. And today we're kicking off a brand new series that we're calling Exiles through the book of Daniel. And really the point of the series is help us to live faithfully in the midst of a fallen world. There's lots of powerful stories in the book of Daniel, and over about the next eight weeks, we're going to be diving in and learning how we can live as exiles even when we are in a hostile culture. So before we jump into that, let me take a moment and pray for us this morning. Father God, we do thank you uh, very much for your goodness and your grace. And Lord, I, I pray that in these next few moments as we open your word to Daniel chapter 1, that we would be encouraged and challenged and strengthened. I pray that your Holy Spirit would be working in our hearts and we would be sensitive to what you have to say. Lord, speak to your people. We need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, typically when you think of fairy tales, I, I think today people's minds run to Disney princesses and happily ever after. But the reality is, if you read some of the original fairy tales, like if you go to the Brothers Grimm or Hans Christian Andersen and look up those, the origination of those stories, they're a little bit, shall we say, more grisly. For instance, uh, in the story of Cinderella, um, the, the wicked stepsisters end up having their eyes pecked out by birds. Or if you go to the story of the little mermaid, Ariel, who isn't even given a name in the story, ends with losing her tongue and being turned into sea foam. And then last, but certainly not least, if you go to the story of Snow White, the evil queen gets her just desserts in the end and she's put into hot iron shoes and forced to dance until she dies. Um, as my teenagers would say, gross. Um, the idea is simply this. These stories have a earthy bit. And I bring this up because sometimes when we think of the book of Daniel, we think of some of the tremendous Bible stories that are found there, like, you know, Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. And these are wonderful and awesome stories. But the reality is Daniel has a bit of a grisly undertone to it. The title of the message today is Gritty Grace because this story of Daniel and his friends' faithfulness in the fallen world is a story of grace in the midst of very, very gritty circumstances. In fact, look at how the book begins. Daniel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the third year of the reign of King Jehoiakim of Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed King Jehoiakim over to Judah, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. So the story starts out even on a sober note. Daniel and his friends, home city, Jerusalem, is sacked. It's been sieged and now it's taken over, including the temple, the thing that they held very sacred by the conquering king, Nebuchadnezzar. And apparently, Daniel was from an important family in this city because we read in the very next section, look at verse 3. The king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defect, good-looking, suitable for instruction in all wisdom, knowledge, perceptive, and capable of serving in the king's palace. He was to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them the daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years, and at the end of the time, they were to attend to the king. Among them, from the Judahites, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief eunuch gave them the names. He gave the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, 
Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Well, you read that at first glance and you think, well, that doesn't sound so terrible. I mean, it sounds like they were getting a top-notch education and they were provided for well. But stop and think about a few of the details that we learn here right at the beginning of Daniel. First of all, Daniel and his friend's homeland, including the temple, had just been sacked. Uh, they lost a battle. They were on the losing end of the war. Their country, their nation, and even in one sense, their religion had been conquered by this outsider. Much of what they would have held dear would have been taken from them in one fell swoop. Second, Daniel and his friends were literally young men. Emphasis on the word young. The Persians during this time typically began their education of boys like this at about 14. So we can reasonably assume that that's around the age where Daniel and his friends were. These were young men on, on the very beginning of their teenage years. What is more, because their capture is the result of a conquest, it is likely that Daniel and his friends' parents were dead. Um, you know, so Babylon rolls into town and maybe... Uh, Daniel's parents and his friend's parents were, were part of the casualties of the war. Uh, if not, it's also possible that they were executed as a result because that was often the case when a conquering king would come into town, he would execute the nobility to prevent any type of uprising. Well, whether or not they're dead, the, the one thing remains true. Daniel and his friends were taken away from their family, taken away from their homeland, taken away from everything that was familiar. And next... Here is a detail where the story gets very grisly. It is not unlikely that Daniel and his friends were castrated. There's at least three reasons why I think this is probable. First of all, this was commonly practiced during this time of servants in royal household. Because kings didn't want any of his servants to have romantic interest towards any of his family members or maybe his harem, this barbaric custom was, was adopted to prevent that altogether. Second, notice who Daniel and his friends are put under the charge of. Look at verse number three. The king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch. The translation here is literally chief of eunuchs, which could mean a couple of different things. Either Ashpenaz was a eunuch, which is probably likely, but also could mean that Ashpenaz, the eunuch, was given charge of all of the eunuchs. Third, when it was prophesied to King Hezekiah of Jerusalem, a, a, a couple of kings earlier, that the country of Babylon would come in and take over Israel, we read these ominous words over in 2 Kings chapter 20, verse number 18. Some of your descendants who come from you, whom you father, will be taken away and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Perhaps Daniel and his friends were the casualties of this cruel practice of the Babylonians. Finally, uh, the reason that this is a very grisly story is Daniel and his friends had their identity strip, stripped away. Look at verse number seven. The chief eunuch gave them names. So these are teenagers, and the chief eunuch comes in and he renames them all. And notice the names. He gave Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. All of the Hebrew names had reference to the one true God. I won't take time to dive into what each of them mean, but they were all an allusion to Yahweh, Jehovah, the true God of Israel. But when Ashpenaz renames these young men, 
they're all given names to point to the Babylonian pantheon, all pointing to some sort of pagan deity. Essentially, Nebuchadnezzar was trying to take away Daniel and his friends' culture, their family, and even their God. Well, not every detail about what happened in the captivity of Daniel and his friends is crystal clear. You know, some of what I shared is a little bit of speculation. But what I do know, and what we all know, is this. Daniel and his friends face loss, kidnapping, barbarity, trauma, and confusion. Sometimes we highlight the prominent positions and the advancement that Daniel and his friends experience as we go through the story of Daniel, and rightly so. There's some amazing things that happen in this book, as we'll see in weeks to come. But the reality is this. Daniel and his friends were exiles living in a hostile territory. I want us to understand that, that these young men were exiles. They were taken from their homeland. They were living a place that was not theirs. Everything they knew was stripped from them in one moment. Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were not their names. Bel and Marduk, the gods of Babylon, were not their gods. Nebuchadnezzar was not their king. And very simply put, Babylon was not their home. Which is exactly why this book is so relevant for today. You see, like Daniel and his friends, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are living in one sense in exile. This world is not your home. Time and time again, the Bible emphasizes this point. Look at what it says over in 1 Peter chapter 2. Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the sinful desires that wage war against your soul. Or Philippians chapter 3, verse number 20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait the Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Or finally, in John chapter 17, verse 15, the Lord Jesus Christ says this, I am not praying that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Now notice this in verse 16. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. The profound reality of this, child of God, it's this. Listen carefully. The place we reside in is not our home. This world, this earth, this country, this state, this city, this is not our ultimate home. And because of this, we should and will often find ourselves not quite fitting in. Our values won't line up with the culture. Our beliefs may seem strange and out of date. Our behaviors at times will be countercultural. Why? In a sense, if I could use an analogy, because God's people should speak with heaven's accent. You know, many of you have probably got to meet our church planter here at Gospel Hope, Manuel Sanchez, who we hope to send to the Dominican Republic very soon to plant a church there. Well, if you talk with Manuel, you quickly realize that, man, maybe English is not his native language. He's an excellent English speaker, but he speaks with an accent. And so you engage in a conversation with this brother and your immediate question begins to rise. Where are you from? In a sense, that's how we as believers should live in this world. We should have the accent of heaven. Yes, we speak the language of the culture. We're fluent in what's going on around us. And yet it's clear that this world is not quite our home. We have a slightly different accent than everyone else. And what a needed reminder this is for us today. As 
we look at our world, we realize that this is not our home. And this points us to one of the big ideas in the book of Daniel, namely this. We can be faithful even in a fallen world. Daniel and his friends, in spite of the adversity, in spite of the pressure, in spite of the open antagonism and hostility towards their worship of the one and true God, they were able to navigate the fallenness of their world with faithfulness. And you and I can do the same thing. And we need to remember this because as we look at our world today, it is very clear that it has fallen. The pandemic, the division, the tension, the uncertainty, the world is fallen, but brothers and sisters, the book of Daniel reminds us that we can be faithful even though our world is deeply scarred. Which leads me really to our point this morning, and it's this. We must be faithful to the Lord even when we experience the fallenness of the world. We must be faithful to the Lord even when we experience the fallenness of the world. So you might hear that and say, man, Ryan, I'm, I'm with you. I see the world's fallenness. And I, I know the story of Daniel a little bit and how they're faithful in the midst of that. But what does that look like in my life? Well, I'm so glad you asked because I think here in Daniel chapter 1, we're given a glimpse of what it looks like to be faithful in a fallen world. And briefly today, I'd like to highlight three things Three things that mark us when we're being faithful to God in the midst of our fallen culture. The first thing is this. If you're going to be faithful in a fallen world, the first thing you must do is this. Resolve. The first thing we see these young Hebrew men doing and showing was a deep sense of resolve. So they get deported to Babylon. And they're put in, in what seems to be, from outside looking in, an impossible situation. Look at chapter 1, verse number 5. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. Well, you read that and you're like, well, what's the big deal there? Well, we have to remember that Daniel and his friends were Old Testament Jews who obeyed the Mosaic dietary laws. And there is no doubt that something in the king's fare that was provided for Daniel and his friends didn't fit with the stipulations of the law. It literally was not kosher, pun intended. You see what I did there? Um, the other idea is this. Oftentimes in royal courts of, of pagan leaders, they would take the food that they would provide to their household and they would offer it to idols, to false god, to their pagan deities. And so perhaps that was what motivated Daniel and his friends to say, no, we don't want to even vicariously participate in the worship of idols. We don't know exactly the motivation, but we do know this, that Daniel and his friends had a clear conviction that they would not participate in eating the king's food. Verse 1, chapter 8, spells that out very plainly for us. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. To put it simply, Daniel resolved, he resolved that he would please the Lord. For him and his friends, this was an absolute non-negotiable. Or if we can fast forward to the life of the Apostle Paul, he put it this way over in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse number 9. Therefore, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to be pleasing to God. Here's how I would say that very simply. Allegiance to our Lord 
must be the ambition of our heart. Allegiance to our Lord must be the ambition of our heart. Perhaps this sounds self-evident, but I believe that if we simply resolve to make pleasing God our highest ambition, our highest purpose, our highest aim, it will have profound impacts on how we live our daily life. You see, you and I, just like Daniel, live in a fallen world. And what that means is that oftentimes we are going to find ourselves in seemingly, seemingly impossible situations. And yet each one of us can resolve. And I want you to say this phrase with me right now. Say this phrase. My priority is pleasing God. Say that. Okay, we're going to say that several times here together. So I'm going to point at the camera and you're going to say, my priority is pleasing God. Let's practice. My priority is pleasing God. All right, very good. So when you're asked to do something unethical at work, you can say, my priority is pleasing God. When you're tempted to click on an inappropriate image or watch an inappropriate show, you can say, my priority is pleasing God. When someone says something untrue or unkind, rather than seeking to destroy them with your sound arguments or your vehemence and passion, you can say, my priority is pleasing God. When uncertainty or fear threaten to dominate your thoughts and heart, Rather than being overwhelmed with worry, you can say, my priority is pleasing God. It seems that Daniel intuitively realized what the scripture would later say in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse number 13. No temptation has come upon you except what is common to humanity. But God is faithful. And he will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but will with the temptation, he will also provide a way out so that you may be able to bear it. If I could simplify what that verse is saying, I would say it this way. Sin is avoidable even when situations seem impossible. You never have to sin. If we resolve in our heart before the fact, my chief aim, my primary ambition is to please God. We don't have to yield to temptation. Our Lord, our Savior, has provided a way out for us. And it begins with us. If we're going to live faithfully in a fallen world, resolving in our heart that we are going to please him above all else. We pledge allegiance not to any country or any political ideology or any people group fundamentally. We primarily owe our allegiance to our true king, Jesus Christ. Second, regard. Even though Daniel firmly resolved to please God, he didn't simply ignore the others who would be affected by his decisions. Look again at the text, verse number 8. Daniel determined that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine he drank. So he asked permission from the chief eunuch not to defile himself. Uh, Daniel didn't come in like a bull in the china shop or demanding his rights. Instead, he humbly appealed to Ashpenaz. He came to the chief of eunuchs and he said, Look, here's the situation. Would you change things up for me? Because this is a problem in my conscience. And when the eunuch heard what the issue was, he expressed this concern to Daniel. Look at verse number 10. The chief eunuch said to Daniel, 
I fear my lord the king, who assigned you food and drink. What if he sees your faces looking thinner than the other young men your age? You would endanger my life with the king. So Daniel said to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king's food and deal with your servants based on what you see. So why did Daniel propose this plan? Because he was not only able to see the difficulty in his situation, he was able to see the difficulty in Ashpenaz's situation at all. Daniel had empathy for those around him, even in this extremely challenging time for he and his friends. Daniel exemplified what should be true of all of us, namely this, Christians should be people of conviction and compassion. Christians should be people of conviction and compassion. Daniel did not compromise his conviction by saying to Ashpenaz, oh, you know what, man, it's no big deal. I see that kind of puts you in a jam. I'll just eat the king's food. No, he didn't do that. Nor did he fail to show compassion by coming in and saying, Ashpenaz, you pagan fool. I don't care about you. I don't care about what happens to you. If you die, so be it. You work for that monster Nebuchadnezzar. No, no, no. That was not Daniel's approach either. Daniel walked the line between compassion and conviction. And this is so important in our day and age today. Because it seems that on every side, people are trying to pull Christians over to in, into the conviction camp or pull Christians over to the compassion camp. But that is not the case for God's people. We must have both. And this has always been the case for the people of God. This has always been the way that we live. In fact, when our Savior came into the world, it was said of him that he came full of grace and truth. Imagine, if you would, kind of that the Christian life is a little bit like a tightrope. Um, and we need tension on both ends of the tightrope. We could put this side over here, conviction, and this side over here, compassion. Or if you want to use the biblical language, grace and truth. Well, you can't be an all-grace person and no tension over here. The tightrope won't be tight and you won't be able to walk that line. Nor can you be an all-truth person over here. The tightrope won't be tight. We need to balance that like our Savior did and embody the principles of our Master saying, we are full of grace and full of truth. We are people of both conviction, we believe what we believe, we stand on the Word of God, and compassion. We care about people that are around us. This is simply how our Savior lives, and He calls us to follow His example. Remember, Jesus is the person who came to the well and he talked to the woman who no one else would talk to. And then in that same conversation, he challenged her about her lifestyle and living in adultery. Jesus cleansed the temple. He came in, he cleansed the temple and told those who were marginalized people to get out. He was forceful on the truth of what he believed the, the temple was all about. And then a few chapters later, he comes to the city of Jerusalem and shows compassion for those same people weeping over them. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, how often I have longed for you to come. Jesus fed the masses. 
he blessed the 5,000 and the 4,000. And then in the same breath, he turns around and rebukes them for only looking for physical bread rather for than the spiritual bread that they really needed. Our Savior is full of grace and truth. Jesus embodied conviction and compassion, and we should follow in his steps. There are few greater compliments that can be paid to our church, to our individual church family, then people would say, you know what, that group of believers, man, they, they believe in the truth. They stand firmly on God's word. They care about conviction. But at the same time, those folks are marked by deep grace. They are compassionate. They care about hurting people. They care about suffering. Oh, gospel hope, let's follow the steps in our Savior and have regard for other people even as we resolve to do what the Lord has called us to do. Third, and finally, Daniel and his friends just rested. They, they had rest. Uh, look again at the text. Verse 12, please test your servants for 10 days. This is Daniel speaking to Ashpenaz. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men who are eating the king food and deal with your servants based on what you see. In, in other words, these young men resolved to please the Lord. Then they kind of took a look around and they regarded those who would be impacted by the decision. And then finally, they simply rested in God's hand. And for Daniel and his compatriots, the situation worked out beautifully. Look at verse 18. At the end of the time that the king had said to present them, the chief eunuch presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king interviewed them, and among all of them, no one was found to be equal with Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. But here's the thing. These four young men didn't know how things were going to turn out. They didn't know that there was going to be a happy end of the story. They didn't know that they were going to be healthier or approved or more fit or better thought of by the king. They just were saying, we're going to trust the Lord. We're going to do what he has called us to do. We're going to act upon our convictions, and then we're going to place ourselves in the Lord's hand. They had to, like the rest of us, take risk for God and learn to rest in in God. We must take risk for God and then learn to rest in God. Now at first glance or at second glance or at tenth glance, that may seem a little bit scary. It is. It is. God has not chosen to tell us all the details that are going to happen when we take risk for him, when we put ourselves out there, when we step into the fray, when we try to act on our convictions. God has not said, every time you do that, everything's going to work out fine. That's not what the Bible teaches. And yet, and yet, even though it can be scary to risk ourselves, it's greatly liberating as well. Why is that the case, Ryan? Well, because it reminds us that I am responsible for obedience, but God is responsible for outcomes. Uh, I, God is not calling me to be responsible for the results of what I do in terms of obeying him. He's just calling me to be faithful. Just do what he has called me to do. So in the season of great uncertainty, you don't need to be Nostradamus and put on your future prognostication hat and somehow know how all things are gonna turn out. That's not what God is calling you to do. God is just calling you to put one foot in front of the other in simple obedience to him. You must do what the scripture calls you to do and in faith, entrust yourselves into the hands of the Lord. You know, the analogy that the Bible uses most often to communicate this, this kind of concept 
is the idea of farming. You know, when you're a farmer, uh, what do you do? Well, your job is to take some seeds and sow them in the ground. You plant them, you water them, you fertilize them. But at the end of the day, farmers don't have any control of the harvest. They, they place the seeds in the ground in faith, and they just simply have to trust the Lord to bring about the results. And that's exactly what, what the Lord is calling you and I to do during this season of uncertainty. Sow some seeds of obedience. Just put your seeds of obedience in the ground and take, let the Lord take care of the results. God is not calling you to change people's minds about every issue. He's not calling you to, on your own power, make the economy stable or equitable. He is not calling you to know the future or keep everyone 100% safe. No, I, I, we should care about all those things and pray and ask God to work. And if God is calling you to act in certain ways, we should act in those ways. But at the end of the day, we don't have control of the results. What the Lord is calling you and I to consistently do is put some seeds of obedience down into the ground and rest that he will take care of the harvest. Or if I could say it this way, God cares far more about your rest in him than your results for him. Our rest in God is greater than our results for God. He's in charge of the outcomes. We are simply to take care of the matter of obedience. But as faithful as Daniel was in this passage, he's not the main real hero in this story. Because Daniel's faithfulness actually points us ahead to one who was even more faithful, namely the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, when Jesus became a man, he came into a very fallen world. Here's what it says over in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse number 22. He did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. And notice this, verse 23, when he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So Jesus experienced the fallenness of the world. He was in hostile territory. He was an enemy. He was an exile. He left his home in heaven to come to earth. And why did Jesus not rage against the fallenness? What did he do instead of eliminating his enemies? Here's what it says in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 again. He entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. And that's exactly what God is calling you and I to do. He is calling us to rest in the Lord, to entrust ourselves into his hand. Why? Why did Jesus do such a thing? Why did the innocent one, the king of heaven, do such a thing as simply entrust himself into the hands of God? I think at least in part, Jesus did that. He came and was faithful in a fallen world to show us that it could be done. Back up to verse number 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. You see, Jesus didn't come and live and die and raise simply to save us. He did that for sure, and we're so grateful for that. But Jesus also suffered like he did to change us. You see, here's the idea. You can be faithful in a fallen world because Christ has been faithful to you. 
Jesus has been faithful to you, which enables you to be faithful in the midst of a fallen world. Our hope is not simply the strength of our character. Our hope is in the character of one who lived and died and rose in our place. Oh, gospel hope, we can be faithful. It is possible to be faithful because Jesus died on the cross to make it a reality. Let's trust in his work to enable us to navigate the fallen world in biblically faithful ways. Let me close by just challenging us with a couple of questions. I'd like you to carefully answer these in your own heart. I'll go through them slow so you can think. I'm going to work through those three points and ask you all to ask a practical question of yourself about living faithfully in a fallen world. The first one is this. What is one area of your life where you need to resolve to please the Lord? Where do you make, where do you need to make your highest priority pleasing Second question is this, who is one person or group of people that you need to regard with compassion? That is, who are people in your life or groups of people that you become in contact with that you're prone not to show Christ-like compassion to? Who are those people that you need to regard? And then third and finally, where is one place in your life where you can rest in God to take care of the results. How is God calling you to simply entrust yourself into his hands, just like Jesus did? Where do you need to rest in God? Well, Gospel Hope, I, I hope this message has encouraged you to strive to be faithful in a fallen world. And what the story of Daniel and what the work of Jesus reminds us is that it's possible it's not just an aspiration for us. It should be our, our ambition, something that we can achieve through the work of Jesus on our behalf. Jesus died and rose again so that you can be faithful and follow in his steps. Let's pray and ask God to do that work in our hearts. Oh, Lord, make us faithful people, even in the midst of a fallen world. In Jesus' name we pray.